a cool thing. It's always a cool thing to me that, uh, thanks, Audrey, that um, we can worship. God hears us. I don't know. There's, I say that a lot. I feel like maybe I say it too much and people think, ah, that's just what he says. But honestly, it, it's truly how I feel. It's just an amazing thing that God hears us worship corporately and individually. Um, I do have a question, though, for you this morning. How many of you guys, parents, you took your kids out in that stuff yesterday? How many of you guys did that? You deserve a medal. I'm just saying, we don't have them, but if I had them, I'd pin them on you. Because that was kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's, um, I'm, at a, I'm at an age, my kids are at an age where I, I don't know where they were last night, but they weren't at home. Uh, they're at friends' houses and stuff. It's great. It's, it really is great because I didn't have to get drenched. And so we got this thing that my wife Emily and I do where we, uh, we pass out candy to kids that come, but we also set up a bonfire in our driveway, pass out hot apple cider to the parents who come. Um, it's, just, it's just cool. So last night it was like pouring rain. We had like our 12 heat dishes on in the garage, uh, dressed up like it's February in Michigan. And and uh, we had to put up that easy up, you know, the big pop up canopy thing out in our driveway. And it was funny how many parents came and like figured out ways to stall under that canopy. Because, I mean, I saw this. I just this picture still in my head of this one guy who came in a leather jacket, no hood or nothing. And he just he just drenched. And the guy was just drenched. And so I was thinking, I hate Halloween. I'm just so glad where my kids are. I'm glad that they're out. I don't care. Man, I was just anyway. So if you took your kids out and that stuff yesterday. And God bless you. You're a good parent, You're a better parent than me, and you deserve a medal, and good for you. It's interesting because Halloween makes me think of when I was a kid, right? And we've got our guys coming down this morning. They're going to pass out uh, buckets and books, taking our uh, uh, welcome books this morning. Hopefully you had a chance to put your name in there and, and uh, opportunity just to participate in worship through offering. But as I think about Halloween, I think about when I was a kid, like probably you guys do the same thing, you know, as you were putting your kids to bed or whatever, and then you were uh, uh, checking their candy or however you call it in your house. Um, uh, yeah, and you were probably thinking about when you were a kid and like you going out and doing what you did on Halloween, what kind of costumes you wore, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because last night I was thinking about Halloween as I was dry and warmish in my garage. And, um, and I was thinking about being an eighth grader. And I was thinking when I was in eighth grade, I was in love with a woman. Now, she was an eighth grader too, but I mean, she was a woman. I was in love with this beautiful blonde goddess, gorgeous Woman, And I just thought, man, she should be my girlfriend. This is so obvious. Nothing has been clearer in my entire life than this reality right now. That this beautiful eighth grade woman should be my girlfriend. This, this gal's name, her name was Audra Puccio. Beautiful Italian blonde goddess, right? And so in eighth grade, I remember thinking, man, she should be my girlfriend. So I prayed and waited and, and watched. And, and there was a couple of problems. One is it's not that she didn't know I didn't exist. Like she knew I existed. Matter of fact, we were friends. That was the problem. I said that this morning and all the students over here go, ha ha, friend zoned. That's right. Right. Matter of fact, she said, Chris, you're such a good friend. And I died a little inside. Right. I thought, oh, no. And the second problem was that Audra had picked a boyfriend named Mike. Mike was a jerk. He really, really was. The guy was a jerk. He was kind of a bully. He was mean. He was cruel. He wasn't good to her at all. He wasn't kind to her. He wasn't kind to the people around him. He was truly a jerk. 
And meantime, I'm a good guy. And I'm thinking, this is obvious, right? So ninth grade comes and I'm praying and waiting and watching. God, it's so obvious. Why haven't you figured this out yet? Just make her my girlfriend, have her break up with Mike. This is really easy. And 10th grade came and I'm praying and waiting and watching. God, this is like so simple. Like she should be my girlfriend. My life would be complete if she was just my girlfriend. And then 11th grade came and I thought, God, why have you not figured this out yet? This isn't rocket science if I can figure it out, right? Like praying and waiting and watching for Audra Puccio to be my girlfriend. And I I was up against this question as a junior in high school. I'm like, "Um, this just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, I'm watching a bad guy get the girls and I'm a good guy and I can't get the girl. This makes no sense to me at all. I think it's just not fair. It's just not fair. You ever had an experience like that where you look around maybe and you see uh, bad people, people who maybe aren't living the best or living the right or trying to do the best they can or whatever, and they seem to be winning. And then you look at your life and you're like, man, I'm trying to do this right. And I'm just not winning. You look around and you see them, you know, them, like getting good stuff bad guys getting good stuff. And you look at your life and you're like, I'm a good guy. I'm not getting good stuff. You ever had that experience? And maybe if you've had that thought, maybe that thought has transitioned to the next phase, which is, is it even worth it being a Christ follower? Man, like life would be so much easier if I didn't have this, this Jesus thing, like, like hanging over me or on my shoulders. Like life would be so much easier if I didn't have to try to figure out, you know, what would Jesus do? Or if I didn't have to try and think through and wrestle through these difficult moral dilemmas. Or when I run up against situations like, hey, should I stay faithful to my wife? Well, it depends on if that works out best for me or not. Right. Or if I if I think about, you know, should I sacrifice time for my kids on Halloween? Well, only if there's something fun in it for me, too. Right. Or if the, the question is, like, really, should I be giving my money away? Like, not only if I get something good out of it. Like, sometimes maybe it seems easier if I wasn't a Christ follower. Have you ever had that thought? If you've ever had that thought, my guess is that, like, right now you're thinking it, and probably some of you are very uncomfortable. You're like, wait, are we, I don't, I don't, I, oh, man, God, don't listen to my brain right now. Maybe you've had that thought, and if you have, you definitely didn't share it with anybody else. I mean, you certainly didn't talk about it with God, right? And if you did uh, go to church, certainly you wouldn't share it in a church, and like, no way on the planet you'd tell your pastor about it. Well, what if I told you that that thought, like, maybe it's just easier to not be a Christ follower. What if you told you that thought was in a pastor's mind? It was actually a pastor who was thinking that. And actually a pastor who not only was thinking it, but actually shared it and not only shared it, but talked about it with God and then wrote it down so that it was like down forever. So everybody else would read that that was the thought that this pastor had, because that's the exact psalm that we're going to deal with today. Psalm 73 is where we're going to be. The pastor's name is Asaph. And and just a couple of things about Psalm 73 as you're looking for it. We're going to read it this morning out of the NIV version of the Bible. And I know that that's not the Bibles that are in the pews there. We have ESV and that's a great translation. Nothing wrong with it at all. The NIV in Psalm 73, um, I think, helps me a little bit as a speaker because the ESV, I'm going to spend a lot of time translating some awkward uh, sentence constructions and some unusual choices of words that might be more accurate but but don't, uh, don't flow real well. So I just want us to read this out of the NIV today. 
So there's a couple ways to get at that. One is if you have an electronic device, and that's how you use your Bible, then that's great. Uh, you can just you know punch NIV and it'll pop up. But if you don't, we've made this really easy this morning for you in your worship bulletins. There's a half sheet, and you're actually going to need this, no matter what version, uh, electronic version, or you brought in NIV or whatever. You're going to want this half sheet at some point, not only because it's NIV, but because at some point we're going to do an exercise together. Don't worry, it's not exercise, like it won't make you move. But, but we're going to do a thing together because I really think that will bring home what's going on in Psalm 73. I said it was a pastor named Asaph. Asaph was a pastor. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we learn a little bit about him. He was what was called a Levitical priest, which basically means that he was like part of the religious leadership, the clergy of the nation of Israel, like ordained by God and birthed into a family to be a religious leader. I mean, we could say so, like, like, like Asaph was like the lead pastor or the senior pastor. And in First Chronicles 16, it actually talks about his general job description was to lead in worship. He was a lead worshiper. It says specifically that his job was to extol, thank, and praise the Lord. Like, what a cool job, right? Like, you show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, you punch in, chink, chink, you know, and like, then you just, that's it. You start praising and extolling and thanking God, and then you punch out at the end of the day. That's, that's your job. What a cool thing. First Chronicles 16 goes a little deeper, and it says that his specific role as a worship leader was to sound the cymbals. I don't know exactly why or what part that played. I don't know if that means like how they led the rhythm section or something. I don't know. But Asaph is this worship leader, this, this, this pastor, this guy who loved worship, who loved people, who loved God. And it's interesting because Asaph existed the same time that David did. We've talked about David over the last few weeks. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And David and Asaph were uh, probably collaborated on a number of Psalms, songs together. Because we see that Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83 have Asaph's name in them. He wrote these things. So probably he and David collaborated on some songs that the worship leader was going to teach Israel. So that's where we start about a guy named Asaph who was a solid guy, loved God, loved people, loved worship. And this is his story starting in Psalm 73 verse 1. Are you there? It says this. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Just pause it for a second, because he just lays it right out. Like right out the chute, he begins to describe his problem, his frustration, his issue. He says, you know, I started looking around. I just began to envy, like, the arrogance of the wicked. It just seems that they are so, life is good. And I just began to look at them, and I was just getting so frustrated. My feet had almost slipped the the word wicked is interesting word and just to share it with you that that it can be used of a person who's guilty of a crime like a wicked person who does bad things could certainly be used of that but also in the psalms in particular the word wicked is used in a more general context and it really means anybody who's against god and what they would mean by that is anybody living outside of a relationship with god so a real general sense of the word wicked is, is anybody who's living outside of a relationship with god and asaph says i began to envy those arrogant because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked are getting good things. He began to lose his balance. Verse 4. It says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Like Asaph's a poet, right? He's a songwriter. Like he, he looks and sees and he begins to catalog and write down this frustration that he sees, that he sees these wicked people getting good stuff, always free of care. They don't have any bothers, like amassing wealth. They're just getting richer and richer. And he goes on in verse 13, he says this. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. He says, surely, like, what's the point? What's the point? Like, in vain, I've kept my heart pure. It's, like, worthless. It's worthless to be in this relationship with God thing because I'm looking around, going to look at all these people, and they're not with God at all. It just seems like their life is doing so well. And he says, my life, though, not so much. Matter of fact, uh, I don't know, you can maybe translate it like saying something like, my body hurts, I'm always sick, I owe too much money, my friends suck, my family barely acknowledges me, and I feel so alone. And it's interesting because I don't think Asaph is just throwing like a pity party for himself. I think these are legit observations on his part. His life is tough. And he looks around and he seems to think that their life isn't. And so he's frustrated and he's hurt and he's angry. Legit concerns. And we get to verse 15 and we get this little glimpse, a little foreshadowing of maybe where Asaph is headed with this. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He says, if I started writing songs that Israel's going to sing, if I started teaching this from the front, if I started having these conversations in rooms talking about how unfair it is, like that just doesn't seem right in my gut. Like, Like, I don't think that's the God I know. Like, I get it, I'm looking around and I see this, the, the wicked, like, seemingly having a carefree life and getting good stuff, bad guys getting good stuff. And yet, for me to say, ah, but, but that I'm not as a good guy, it just doesn't feel right down here. Like, that's not the God I know. So this is what he does in verse 16. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. It's, it's interesting because he, he, he says, uh, when I tried to figure all this out, uh, it, it gave me a headache is probably the most literal way of translating that. It gave me a double migraine. Like it made my head hurt. I couldn't get my head around it. It was so frustrating until I entered the sanctuary of God. It, it's also interesting because back in the day when Asaph was writing, you literally, if you were going to talk with God, you needed to go to the tabernacle or the temple, the sanctuary. You need to go into the, the church because God's presence literally resided in that structure, in that tent when they were mobile, uh, when they finally got a temple. In that temple, God's presence was there. So if you're going to go talk to God, you can probably do it through some priests or whatever, but you would come into the sanctuary, into God's presence, and then, and then deal with it. And it's different today. Like, we need to recognize it's different today. Like, God's presence doesn't reside in a building. As a matter of fact, since Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again, went back up to heaven, he left us the Holy Spirit. 
permanent resident with us. So God's presence literally resides with us every day. We don't have to go somewhere special to talk to God, to communicate with God, to be in God's presence. We are immediately in God's presence every day. It's a beautiful thing. But back in the day here, they would literally have to go in somewhere to be in God's presence. This is kind of an aside, but it's just interesting because of the reality of having God's presence with us all the time. Sometimes we make then very little out of the church. Like, like a building, a place where corporate worship is, is experienced. We say uh, that that it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. And I'm not saying God's presence resides in this building at all. He resides with me. It's a permanent resident. He's a permanent resident with me. But I'll just tell you that in my life, some of the times that I've been the most dry and frustrated and seemingly distant from God, I've found my way into a church building and worship there. I recognize I don't have to do that. I could have done it in my car. I could have done it on the beach. I could have done it in my bathroom. And I've done all of that. But for me, there's always been something unique about a place that's given up specifically for corporate worship. In the Old Testament, back when Asaph is writing, it was where God's presence resided. So all that, sorry, that was an aside. If that didn't make anything in your brain, that's okay. I apologize for taking your time. But for me, that's something. So Asaph goes into God's presence. And it's interesting because his perspective begins to change. Check out verse 18. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you'll take me into glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. It's just interesting that his perspective changes when he gets into God's presence. His, his focus seems to be different. He begins to describe that and, and look at that. It focus changes from, from other places to, to you, to looking squarely in God in his face. And, and it was almost like nothing else mattered at that point to Asaph. Some of these observations that he had made that were probably somewhat legit, bad people getting some good things, didn't seem to be as important when he looked Jesus eyeball to eyeball. It just didn't seem to matter the same way. Like his whole perspective was changed. And it's interesting because in verse 28, like an incredibly beautiful verse, he says, but as for me, it's good, it's good to be near God. It's interesting because that phrase, but as for me, is also used in verse 2. And in verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. Because his focus is on them and that what they're getting and bad people. As for me, my, fo- my, my feet almost slipped. And then by the end of this experience, he, he comes down to, but as for me, it's good to be near God. The same phrase acts almost like bookends to this, this experience, this change of focus that, that Asaph has. But as for me, it's good to be near God. Here's what I'd like you to do if you're willing to do this with me. And I'm not a writer, and I get it if you're not a writer, but if you just humor me and pretend like, like you are, um, and you're with me on this, love me enough to do this, uh, grab that half sheet, if you have it, and grab a pen. I know you're going to have to fight over them because we only put a few in each pew, so get it quick. Um, and, and here's what I'd like to have us do, if you're, if you're willing. I'd like to have us just uh, circle some things and draw a box around some things and underline some things because I think 
seeing visually the change of focus is incredibly valuable. Incredibly valuable. It was a big piece of my week, to be honest with you. Just seeing this change of focus. So here's what we'll do. I'll, I'll read it. I'll make it real obvious for you. I hope it'll get incredibly irritating. I apologize for that on the front side. But, but I'll make it real obvious. Here's what I'd like to have you do first. I'd like to have you circle um, every time the word they pops up. We'll read it together. We'll do it together. But I'll, I'll have you circle every time the word they pops up. We'll start in verse 1. It, it, Asaph just kind of jumps into this with some, some statement. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We get to verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Like, it's obvious where the focus is, isn't it? Circling the pronouns seems to be a big deal here. We're going to change the uh, instructions here. I'd like you to draw a box around this next set. Every time we use the pronoun like I or me or my, uh, we'll put a box around that. Fair enough? So verse 13 says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. See the dominant pronoun there? You see where Asaph's head is, where his focus is? We get this, we can see it on paper, right? Starting in verse 18, I want to do one more thing. I'd like you to underline all the words, uh, pronouns you, okay? Or, or God, because we're talking about God. But the pronouns that are you. Here we go, verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. 
the change of focus shown by underlining and circling pronouns to me is huge in this psalm. It's almost like when Asaph's focus was on them, was on I, his life began to slip. I think it's true of me. I think it's true of us. When our focus is on them, they, those, and I, uh, it's like nothing makes sense. It seems to be a struggle. It seems to be frustrating. It gives me a double migraine. But when Asaph changes his focus to you, it seems like all that other stuff tended to fade away and focus became clear. When our focus is on Christ, it seems like life becomes all right. So back to Audra Puccio. Audra, who I was in love with. Well, 12th grade year uh, came around, and I learned an incredibly valuable uh, thing. I learned that uh, nerds could get girls, too. And so I asked Audra out on a couple of dates, and she said yes. I was like, oh, what do I do now? And so I went out on a couple of dates with Audra. And it's interesting, though, because between my junior year and senior year of high school, I had a change in me where I became passionately in love with Jesus Christ all over again. And I became like just consumed by the scriptures. And I knew that pastoral ministry was my future. I, I didn't necessarily know what that was going to look like, but I just knew that was my direction. And so I remember clear as day sitting in my living room. Uh, Audra sitting next to me. We were looking at my family Christmas tree. And I just, I, I mean, she was a great gal. We'd had fun and, and all that kind of stuff, whatever. But I was looking at the Christmas tree. We were talking and I was just thinking, why was dating her ever so important to me? Like, I can't remember why that was such a big deal. Because, because she was just, you know, maybe lukewarm in her relationship with Jesus at best. The ministry was not, you know, where she was headed. We were just in two different uh, planets and, and a wonderful person, nothing wrong with her. But I just sat there going, like, what was I thinking? I can't remember why this was such a, like an enormous deal to me. So it was almost as if when my focus was on uh, uh, they, Mike, her evil, smelly, evil boyfriend, or Audra, the blonde goddess, like God said, no. No, no, she's not going to be part of your life like that. And then when my focus changed and God became the priority and my eyes were directed where they ought to be, it was almost like God said, hey, whatever. Because I was able to be like, eh, I just don't think this is for me. I, I just find that fascinating. That's the, 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 the value of where our focus is and how important that is for shaping how we think and where our life is. Here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to end this morning. Um, I want to read Psalm 73 one more time because I think the text is rich, to be honest. I, I just think that there's so much in the text that I could talk about it forever. I would rather just read it over and over again. But I want to read it to you from um, the message version of the Bible. It's a different translation, and it's just a way that keeps it a little bit fresh. It says it in some ways that I think are just really interesting as we hear the language. It's, it's not A lot of it's not going to pop up behind me. That's okay. I'm just going to ask if you would just kind of kind of dig in and listen to the poetic structure of how the interpreters of this uh, psalm into the message version uh, do that i just think that there's some richness here this is how they uh, translate this no doubt about it god is good good to good people good to the good hearted but i nearly missed it i missed seeing his goodness i was looking the other way looking up to people at the top envying the wicked who have it made who have nothing to worry about not a care in the whole wide world Pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Like nobody's tending the store. 
The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. And I've been stupid to play by the rules. What's it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I had given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture, the slippery road you've put them on, with a final crash and a ditch of delusions, in the blink of an eye, disaster, a blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them, and there never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox. In your very presence, I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who left you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I am in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made the Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. Amen? We're going to sing together. We'll be done this morning. If you guys would stand on your feet, that would be awesome. Thank you.